Christians have traditionally conceived of Holy Week as an intense preparation for the celebration of Easter. They have understood that the good news of Christ's resurrection, his exaltation to the presence and power of God, and his continued power and presence among us through the Holy Spirit, involves also the far more paradoxical good news of his passion and his death. They have grasped, though not always gladly, that participation in the Paschal mystery, both liturgically during the Lenten season, but most of all existentially in the fabric of their lives, necessarily means passing through such suffering and death as prelude to our own full participation in the glory that is the presence and power of God. For this reason, Christians have also traditionally read and often even performed the passion narratives of the gospel in the days of Holy Week, not only as a reminder of what God has done for them in Christ Jesus, but also as a dramatic, though nonetheless true participation, moment by moment, in his suffering. This week at All Saints, we enter the same mystery through a slightly different form of scriptural imagination. We are reading not the Gospels, which speak of the cross of Jesus in terms of a story in the past, but parts of letters written in Christianity's first generation, two from Paul's first letter to the Corinthians and two from the anonymous letter to the Hebrews, sent in the same period and possibly even to the same congregation, that speak of the cross of Jesus in terms of its present significance for Christian existence. Those first believers were probably much more convinced than we are of the power of the resurrection. They were, after all, only recently drawn into the energy field of the Holy Spirit that was the church. But no less than us, they needed reminding of the other part of the good news concerning the passion and death of Jesus. How could this splendid gift of new life come to them through the ugliness and the shame of a state execution that combined torture and asphyxiation. The passage from Hebrews 9, 11 to 15 that we have just heard read to us is especially difficult for us to hear today, much, probably much more difficult than it was for its first audience. Jesus' death in this passage is expressed through imagery totally foreign to us. And within an imaginative construction of the world that's no longer ours. The imagery is that of ancient sacrifice, specifically the sacrifice of animals whose blood was offered to God in the temple. Sacrifice, I think you would agree, is not a key term in our present-day lexicon. We consider it less a path to God than a way of misshaping humans. But Hebrews 
places this ancient and universal religious practice within an imaginative universe forged from Plato's philosophy and the Jewish scripture. As Plato imagined the world of ideas, what we might call the spiritual world, as more real, more true, and infinitely better than the world of matter that we inhabit, so Jews influenced by Plato, and we can count the author of Hebrews as one of them, could imagine the biblical language about heaven, where God dwells, in terms of just that sort of perfection. And the biblical earth, where we dwell, in terms of such materiality, which is passing away, imperfect, only a pale reflection of what is real. Now, Hebrews goes further and takes the architecture of the ancient temple and turns it from horizontal to vertical, so that our here and now is the outer court where only material imperfection can be expected. The true sanctuary, the holy of holies, is in heaven, that is, where God dwells. And having presented to us this daring and imaginative turn, Hebrews takes one more step and portrays the death of Jesus, that horrible, gasping suffocation on that terrible, lonely height as the perfect sacrifice offered in and through his body, not in the blood of animals, but in his own blood. Blood that enters with his ascent to the Father into the perfect heavenly sanctuary where the effect of his obedient self-donation for us remains efficacious forever. Now, candor forces us to admit that all of this seems not only terribly alien to us, it seems even slightly bizarre. We dwell in a world not shaped by Plato, but by Francis Bacon. Technology, commerce, not philosophy, govern our calculations and actions. What counts for us is not what is unseen, but what is seen. What can be measured, grasped, counted, given a price. Reality is not in heaven, it is here on earth. Not the sacrifice of the self, but the acquisition of a lifestyle is what we regard as realistic. Not eternal perfection, but a temporary advantage is what we are taught by the mechanisms of political competition and day trading. We do not pursue the cleansing of our conscience so much as the covering of our tracks. Here, then, is the first gift this ancient text gives us. It challenges us to consider whether its universe or ours is actually the larger and more adequate. 
In the world that we have fashioned and which then fashions us, the world of slippery conviction and temporary commitment, the world of never-ending novelty and inevitable boredom, the world of get what you can while you can and repent in public only when you are caught, is this world actually more real, more true, better, than the world imagined by Hebrews? Our world enables us to do wonderful things while we are young and healthy and have resources, but it cannot deal with age and sickness and poverty and loss. Above all, it cannot enable us to imagine death, the mystery we all face as anything except ultimate closure. But Hebrews has taken the most offensive of all deaths, that of the only truly innocent human, and imagined it as an opening to what is most real, most true, most beautiful, and all good, an opening to the power and presence of God. There is nothing in the trader's manual or in the congressional record that enables such an imaginative leap. This text of Scripture, though, offers us a way of thinking, a way of imagining a larger world than that of give and take, a world in which the unseen God is the premise and the goal of everything we do in this all-too-solid sphere of give and take. And that makes all the difference, for it enables us to treat the world of give and take not as ultimate and all-consuming, forget about adequate and true, but as only relative and temporary, and measured by the unseen presence and power that calls it into being at every moment. But Hebrews does more than offer us the chance to consider an alternative way of imagining the world. It points us to the most profound significance of Christ's death as it pertains to each one of us. That platonic contrast between spiritual and material is not for Hebrews simply or even essentially a contrast between down here and up there, for the unseen God is not a place or in a place, but suffuses every place. It does not occupy a space among other spaces, but is the power that sustains all space. The contrast that Hebrews helps us think about is the contrast between what is exterior and the interior of our human hearts. Although even here, the spatial terms exterior and interior can distort what he is getting at, yet Hebrews and we need some such terms to get at the reality that he seeks to express. Let's take first the exterior. The sacrifice of the ancient cult, he says, involved the blood and the meat of animals. They are outside us humans, although humans put them forward to represent themselves to God. But, Hebrew says, all that the ancient cult could accomplish was also external. It defined the boundaries of a people and established them as 
God's holy people. In other words, cult defined who was in and who was out societally. Participation in the cult was necessary to be a member of the people. It is a perfectly legitimate religious activity and goal, but it is external. It makes the people holy, that is, distinct from other populations, but it was never designed to change people's hearts, and it didn't do so, and that's what was needed. Hebrews argues that because in Christ God entered fully into our human existence, Jesus' faithful response to God, the obedience that made him perfect, changes our human existence as well. His sacrifice in his blood, which was given with his willing, personal offering, when he comes into the world, he says, I have come to do your will, O God. And Hebrews says it is by that will that we have been saved. That offering of Jesus demanded his own faith, the inner commitment of Jesus' heart. The effect, Hebrew says, is that our own hearts now have the capacity to respond to God in the same way. Our consciences, that is, our deepest sense of individual freedom and responsibility, Hebrew says, have been cleansed so that we are capable of responding to the unseen God in precisely the way that Jesus did. His sacrifice does not mark the external boundaries of a people. It purifies and empowers the internal dispositions of every individual person. The death of Jesus for Hebrews is one in which Jesus is at one victim and priest. It is a new opening between God and humans in his flesh. It establishes the new covenant of which Jeremiah had dreamed. Jeremiah said, I will place my laws in their minds, and I will write them in their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people, and they shall not teach their fellow citizens or their neighbors, saying, Know ye the Lord, for all shall know me from least to greatest. I will forgive their evil doing and their sins I will remember no more. Such, says Hebrews, is the effect of Jesus' death that he died once for all in our behalf. The world that Hebrews imagines is difficult for us to imagine. The gift of Christ Hebrews describes is also difficult for us to accept. For to accept it means that we must focus our attention not on the external appearances of our lives, but on the internal integrity of our thoughts, our dispositions, our commitments. We must pay attention to not how good we look to others, or even at times to ourselves, but on how we appear at every moment to the one of whom Hebrews speaks, who is living and effective 
sharper than any two-edged sword, penetrating and dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow, judging the reflections and thoughts of the heart. Nothing is concealed from him. All lies bare and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must render an account. It is small wonder that Hebrews also declares it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. 